anybody who's inside hemp knows you. I mean, let's face it. If you're been in the business, everybody knows you, but we're some of the people that are going to be tuning into this don't know that much about you. So for one thing, I didn't even try to pronounce your husband's last name. Yeah, and there's no reason to. You you don't even need to use it. Um, the only thing that I, I actually never changed my last name officially. Um, we had a long conversation about that, and he's like, you're just going to have to explain it to everybody. And uh, I was like, all right. So, um, so I never changed it, but I just have it on Facebook. That's the only place, really. So I don't use it like on the website, you know, on our business stuff and anything really except for Facebook. Maybe it's a hemp thing. My wife, she kept her maiden name. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, it's, I, I was like old fashioned about it. I wanted to change. I was like, no, I'm doing this the traditional way. I'm changing. I'm going to be Katie Arzamasova. And he's like, look. You're going to have to spell it for everyone, say it for everyone, explain where it came from, you know, answer questions about it every single time you meet somebody. He's like, as many people as you meet, you don't want to do that, I promise. <laughs> so you're going as Katie Moyer? Katie Moyer. Yeah. All right. Well, Katie, uh, one of the things I'm trying to do with the Full Contact Cannabis Podcast is to put this industry in context because okay. there's so many people who've gotten in this in the last two years, have no real idea about how all this started or some of the struggles we face. Did you decide in 2013? We, I mean, when they first passed the log? I actually never really intended to start a hemp business. Um, I, I was interested in hemp because I am interested just naturally in property rights. Uh, and personal liberties. You know, I believe that everybody should be able to grow this crop no matter where they live or how old they are or who they are. When I was started working on the issue and trying to legalize hemp back in 2007 and eight, um, it wasn't like, I'm going to legalize this and start a business. That was the, la the furthest thing from my mind. But as I learned about it, and as we passed the bill and, and started working on regulations and things like that, I thought, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do something like uh, some kind of consulting or lobbying or, you know, something, maybe a brokerage kind of thing. I certainly wasn't thinking that I'd go out and manufacture hemp products because it wasn't really in my wheelhouse. But what was in my wheelhouse was a love of natural medicine in general. I'm big into plants. Uh, I don't actually have a green thumb, but I'm working on it. And I love learning about the wild edibles and the foraging that we can do right here in Kentucky anyway. You know, the stuff that's just right out there in our backyard, just waiting for us to learn how to use it. When we had the opportunity to grow the first crop in 2014, I worked with two local farmers and we grew about a half an acre, roughly a half an acre in two different locations. Um, so all in all, we had between one and two acres between the two of them. And we grew a fiber crop. So it wasn't a CBD crop. It wasn't even a seed crop. Um, we grew a fiber crop. It was big and beautiful, probably 10 feet tall. At the end of the season, we harvested it and weren't really sure what to do with it because like I said, it was a fiber crop. It was, um, we were thinking construction materials and clothing and things like that. 
but we didn't have any processing. So in, in my education and, and in my learning about hemp, I had learned that uh, roots are a great way to, um, to sort of uh, capture the anti-inflammatory properties of the cannabis plant and that historically the roots were used for arthritis pain. And I thought, well, that's something I can do. I'm already into herbal medicine and stuff like that. So I'll just pull up some roots and, and we'll give it a shot, tinker around with it a little bit. And that's sort of how it happened. You know, it was just a, it was just sort of a chance thing. You know, we, we just thought, well, hey, let's try this out and see what happens. Um, started making this uh, root salve recipe, just kind of tinkering with that recipe a little bit until we got something that we liked. And then uh, we went around and just started uh, giving it to people. So anybody that had any pain, um, any inflammation, joint pain, uh, even fibromyalgia and things like that, we were like, oh, well, here, try this little salve that we made in the kitchen, you know, and it started helping people. And I wasn't really expecting those results, especially not right away, but people were getting instant pain relief. And then, uh, and I, I still didn't think much about it, but then they call me like a week later and say, hey, uh, I haven't taken any Loratabs all week and I'm almost out of this salve that you gave me. So can I get some more of that? And so when those phone calls started coming in, that's when I realized, you know what? Th this is a real need. I mean, people really need this product. And, uh, and unfortunately, not everybody can dig up their own hemp roots. So I think I need to do this. And that's kind of how it started. Um, and then little by little, we just, we added the, the cold press uh, so we can cold press hemp seed oil. That is one of the things that I'm so glad you brought up because it makes you unique. You're still doing seed oil, aren't you? Yes, we are. Uh, and, and like I said, the reason that we went with the oil press was because we were buying oil from Sam's and it was like, why, why am I buying oil when I can be using Kentucky hemp seeds and Kentucky produced oil. So we started uh, cold pressing hemp seed oil and the byproduct of that, of course, is what we call the seed cake. And that, you know, just breaking that seed down into those co two components of oil and the dry fibery protein parts that opened up a whole world of opportunities but not only for us but for a lot of other people as well because um now we've got soap manufacturers that are using our seed oil in their soap there's a, a lady who makes gourmet dog treats and she uses the hemp seed oil and the protein powder in her dog treats people that are making um making moonshine from the seed cake or with the seed cake. I don't think it's got any sugar in it. Um, and making, making bourbon from the seeds. And all of these things are things that I have no idea how to do. I don't know how to make moonshine, believe it or not, even though I'm from Kentucky. Uh, I don't know how to make soap. I don't know how to make gourmet dog treats. Um, but I can break the seeds down into components that will work in those products and then let other people do what they do best. So that's probably the best part of our business is 
um, watching the whole industry grow, even if we're only contributing that, that one little ingredient. Then you segued like, cause we did the same thing. We were one year behind. We did it backwards. The first year in 2015, we tried to do for seed oil and there was nobody pressing. Mm -hmm. And so boom. So the next year we had these people who swore a pinky swear that they were going to come in and build a decortification plant. And of course they didn't. So we did, God, like 40 acres of fiber and ended up bush hogging it because there was just nothing to do with it. So the third year we sold out and went for CBD. When did you make the transition to CBD? Uh, we started tinkering around with CBD at the end of 2015. Um, but because it was still pretty early in the CBD industry, um, the, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of plants actually being grown specifically for CBD. So what we had done was collected the chaff from the seed crop. So we grew a seed crop in 2015 and that was 80 acres of seed. Um, didn't harvest 80 acres. The weather didn't work with us that year, but I'd say we probably harvested 30 or 40 of it and collected a good amount of chaff from it when we cleaned it out. The company that we're still working with is Commonwealth Extracts in Louisville. That was their first year. They were getting started. had a, a small extraction machine, CO2 extraction, and they took that chaff from the seed crop and started extracting it. And this was this was really the first extracts that they had made. Um, obviously, the CBD content was extremely low on it. I think when when all was said and done, and the the concentrate itself was like twelve and a half percent CBD, but it was something, and so it gave us something to tinker around with a little bit. And it, of course, it wasn't long after that. Uh, in fact, I think by the time we were tinkering around with that really low CBD. Um, concentrate. Our grower here had already started producing some uh, clones that they had brought in from Oregon and we grow cherry here. Um, although Kendall is branching out into several other varieties because we have issues with the regulatory agency here in Kentucky not, not wanting, you know, they have this huge variety of concern lists. But so it wasn't long before we got some really good quality CBD extracts, um, but we did definitely tinker around with that low, uh, low CBD stuff for a while and um, really just played with it for a little while. We used it in a CBD light recipe, like a kind of a lower price point, low, low concentration CBD. Um, but now we're using all, all the good stuff, you know, good, good quality grown specifically for that purpose, not pulling CBD out of a seed crop. There's a lot of things that have went on since you got into the business. If I can, I'm going to kind of ask you some pointed questions. How did you uh, avoid the minefield that so many companies in Tennessee and Kentucky and North Carolina who went in and started believing their own press and expanding beyond belief and ended up losing everything. That's something, you know, that's just a little, there's a couple of really good pieces of advice that I got. Um, the first one was from my mom and this wasn't a piece of advice that she gave me specifically for hemp. It was just sort of a, uh, 
business advice that I had picked up from her when I was working for her. But she always talked about how important controlled growth was and that you didn't want to get big too fast. You don't want to outgrow yourself. And of course, we all want to grow. We all want to make more money, but you don't want to grow so fast and so rapidly um, that you can't keep up with it. And I think that's a big problem that we had with um, folks that were just grabbing investors and, um, and, you know, well, you have this many millions of dollars, let's go out and spend it on everything you think that you need. Well, we were only spending on money, our money on things that we knew we needed because we saved up for those things. So we weren't running out and buying things that, uh, that we couldn't afford and, and we weren't using anybody else's money. Everything that we did and everything that Kentucky Hemp Works has, has been built from has been built on money that we've saved up. Um, and I think that's important too. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking out a loan or getting investors. Um, but if you're going to do that, you still have to treat it like it's your own money. Um, the other piece of advice that I got kind of goes along with that. And that is don't spend any money that you can't afford to lose. So that's how we balanced everything. Can we afford to lose this? Maybe not. Then maybe it's not that that wise of a business decision. Well, Tennessee Homegrown, we did basically the same thing because, but it was for another reason. One of the first investors that came my way ended up, what a nice way is, ended up wrestling the company away and driving it into the ground. So mm -hmm. it was one of those things real quick, knowing it, investment if it's not the right people and synergy and all that and so we we self-financed too which you know really did hold back looking though at that um 2000 well yeah 2018 2019 the craziness that went on did you see it coming i mean we kind of did because we knew in tennessee it went from 250 licenses to 4,000. Yeah, we saw a big, uh, like a massive increase as well in that time frame in Kentucky. I don't remember the numbers, but I think it was something like, like we went from like 12 or 13,000 to 40 some thousand approved. Now, not all of those acres got planted, but that's what was approved. I think it was, it was fairly obvious that this was going to be a bubble because there was, um, you could see that when you know these kind of big money people started getting interested in it and started th literally just throwing millions of dollars around that's when you knew like okay that this is getting a little bit crazy um but i think that the bubble is is over for the most part I, at least i think that it's not um unsustainable I think the industry will continue to grow, but that we're now kind of set on a path where we can have sustainable growth as opposed to this like crazy, you know, everybody's just getting into it because they think it's a golden goose and, and they're just going to get rich and retire early. So I think now that those people are out of there, um, we can have more room for the folks that are really in it for the right reasons that want to grow and help people um, continue to change laws and, and improve cannabis laws in the United States and, and who would like to put food on the table and feed their family. So, you know, we're all doing this to make money, to, to pay our bills. 
but it's not the only thing, you know, most of us are, are doing this for what I think is the right reasons. And that's, that's also to help people. I think if you're in any aspect of farming and you don't like the farming aspect, it's just not going to work out. Yeah, I agree. So now we are here. We are in 2020. It's crazy. Your sales have been dinged a little bit by COVID. Where do you see all this going? Well, I think, um, I think COVID, you know, not that I, not that I'm happy that it happened or anything, but I do think that there are some good things coming out of it. Um, I think that it will help to weed out the, the bad actors, the people who aren't interested in sticking around through thick and thin. And I think that it's also going to give us little guys like you and me a chance to uh, really be competitive and and really prove to to our you know our customer base and the people that that support us that we're not that we're in it for the haul the long haul that we're not going anywhere and that we're open to a little bit of a challenge so uh, I think you know this year has been extremely rough we definitely took a, a big ding on our sales like I said sales aren't everything they're important. Um, but we've also been able to use this time to connect more with uh, the people that support us on social media. Um, we've used this time to do more educational stuff like our, our hemp homeschool series, which I'm sure you've seen some of those videos. Um, I'm thinking about doing a little bit more of hemp homeschool type of things, maybe on TikTok. Uh, which is seeming seeming like a pretty decent social media platform. You know, it's got its warts, but right now Facebook isn't very fun. So yeah, 2020 has been crazy, but I think it'll help weed out the bad actors and and really show people that that we mean business and we're here for the long haul. I'd like to talk about that a little bit because that has been an observation of myself is that, uh, it accelerated those businesses that were going to fail anyway quicker. Yep. Yep. It also seems to curtail the speculative nature of the investment dollar that you don't see those people. Well, I'm going to drop a million dollars in this, you know, yeah. somebody who is basically growing 30 plants in their mom's basement. Parts of that still go on. You are a nationally known figure. I would assume that you're getting the phone calls from people in Texas iowa florida georgia who are all still for some unknown reason still thinking this industry is lucrative well here's here's my perspective on that i definitely am not getting the phone calls now i used to get a lot of phone calls that was um you know investment groups or hey we want to partner up and we have all this money and we're going to make you rich and yada 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 um, I'm not getting those phone calls, but I am getting phone calls from the, the little guys that are, and girls, little, little people, they're willing to put in the work. They're not just trying to get rich. Like the people like you and I are still out there fighting for this plant in their own state. They still want to be involved. They still want to be active. Um, maybe they're just now getting active, um, but I've heard from people who are starting new associations and coalitions, different lobbying groups, like grassroots citizen lobbying groups, 
and things like that. And what that tells me is that, that the love for this plant and the uh, desire to be a part of the industry has always been there and isn't going anywhere, that that, that desire to be part of this industry is still strong um, but the desire to just get rich quick is starting to go out, out the window and maybe not the desire, but the, uh, the attitude that this is a golden goose that, you know, investors should just jump on and get rich really quick. One of the things we're not really sure of, but it might be because especially when I talk to people in South Texas or South Florida, because I get called because they're basically wanting to know agricultural advice. And it's just like, here you are in a place that's never been a traditional hemp place and you're trying to go in this and they're still wanting to go year one, 20 acres. Why are you doing 20 acres? When I mean the disconnect is that when I talk to these people, if you put a gun to their head, they couldn't tell you the price of crude, isolate, a gallon of organic seed oil, but yet they're going and throwing money at it. Yeah, it's a little mind-boggling to me, too, to see um, people putting a, a huge amount of investment dollars into hemp in some of those really, really dry states. You know, not to say that it can't be done, but it is going to be more expensive if you have to irrigate that much. And it is, you know, you, you do have to have all your ducks in a row if you want to make this work in a climate that is going to be very, very challenging. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I got to... I got an auction notice from like a CBD extractor out in Oklahoma and I'm thinking, you know, it's pretty dry out there. I don't, I don't really know that much about Oklahoma, but I thought it was a little sandy. So it's just surprising to me how, how much money people are investing into states that it, it would be an incredible challenge to grow cannabis there. Now, like I said, you know, it's not like it can't happen. I know Colorado is a pretty dry state too. And they are obviously growing it quite well out there. But, you know, if you're going to gonna do it somewhere like that, um, you're going to have challenges. Now, not to say Kentucky's the perfect state either. We had so much rain this year that I thought we maybe should switch over to rice or mushrooms or something <laughs> like that. But, but you know, I, I don't think the hemp seemed to mind having too much rain. We're, here we are with a bunch of these, one that I've been having various people come on this and one of the things you kind of dwelled into the fact that we are little guys that we seem to be able to to do well in kentucky at first they really did embrace scale mm -hmm. they i mean they really really did what do you think is the perfect size for a company well that's a good question um i don't think that there's a perfect size i think there's two two good sizes um I think there's a time and a place for the little guys, the ones that want to be um, growing craft flour for uh, for either smoking or food purposes or microgreens, those kinds of things. And then I also think that there's plenty of room for the bigger guys that just want to grow a large quantity of products so that it can be done cheaply and maybe you know bring prices down. I think that's part of the reason that a lot of these prices have come down besides the fact that we just simply have a supply and demand issue where there's a, a tremendous amount of supply um, and not as much demand for the crude and that kind of thing but i think when you're in the middle when you're between small and large that's when it's a little bit more challenging i feel like because you know on, on my level 
with our little bitty oil press, um, you know, it'll do two or 300 pounds of seed a day. So it's a little bit bigger than what you'd find in a regular kitchen, but um, in the grand scheme of the hemp world, it's a small oil press. So when we look at, you know, when we get a question and somebody says, hey, well, I need a hundred gallons of hemp seed oil. And I'm like, well, with my little oil press, it would take me a long time to get that much oil. So then I have to decide, well, do I get another oil press? Well, then I'll be able to do, you know, a little bit more, but rather than just getting another little oil press and another little oil press and another little oil press, it would make more sense financially for me to just get one really big one and be able to do a few tons a day of hemp seed oil. So it is kind of hard to find that balance between uh, that small size and, uh, and being able to really be one with your products and, and like, you know, literally be a part of everything that comes out of your doors and, and then like jumping up to that big scale. So I feel like, you know, you don't want to spend too much money to try to be in the middle. Um, I think at that point, if you've got a really solid business plan, if you've got a solid foundation, a good product line and a good uh, customer base, and, and your customers love you and they trust you, that's when you look at getting investors or taking out a loan and then scaling up to be one of the bigger guys. Um, but I, I do think it's important to have that foundation. <clears throat> the reason I'm saying that, there seems to be very few people successfully pulling off large scale operations. I mean, yeah. I, part of my little thing is talking to people in all the different states I know they're out there, but mm -hmm. it seems like almost all the large scale processing, especially the, on, the, on the processing side, are tanking. I mean, they really are. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Um, I, but I think that goes back to um, that concept of, you know, are you in it for the right reasons? And did you develop yourself before you jumped up to large scale? Or did you try to just go buy a million dollar extractor? Um, and start from there. Uh, the, the company that we work with, Commonwealth Extracts, I think is a good example of um, starting out small and then scaling up. But what he did, he scaled up a little bit at a, at a time. So he started with a small machine and then he got like a mid-sized machine. And then he realized, you know what? This mid-sized machine just isn't cutting it. If I'm going to have a bigger machine, I need to have a really, really big one. So he ended up getting an even bigger machine and now that that didn't happen quickly that happened over a course of six years um so over the course of six years he went from small scale to medium and then jumped from medium to big right away because he realized uh you know if you're going to put that if you're going to put that kind of money into equipment to scale up better better to make sure that your throughput is matching the amount of money that you're spending so um, so, I, but I think you're right. I think there's only a few that I would, you know, consider the big guys um, that are are really still doing something significant. But those are, I think, are the ones that have lasting power. They're in it for the right reasons, and um, they're in it for the long haul. One of my observations, and may be valid or not, and I'd love to get your input on it, is I think part of the problem with a lot of these companies are is finding good mid-level management cannabis, cannabis people. I, the, the one of the thing about it, like one of the reasons why, you know, like 
we've had pressure on us to expand, but where do you find the people? And that's a big part of it. You know, I, I seriously, I had a conversation 18 months ago with the individual who'd bought a million dollars of equipment. And I said, uh, well, do you uh, got your person to operate it right? And they, they said, no. Mm -hmm. And I said, you went out and bought a million dollars with equipment and you haven't hired the people that are going to make this work. And he said, well, the, the thing which I, I think has hurt this business was, well, it can't be that hard to find good people. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to find good people to flip burgers at McDonald's. So, I mean, I would say it's probably hard to find somebody to operate a million dollar piece of equipment as well. Um, that That's a challenge that, you know, I mean, I'm not joking when I say it's hard to find good people to flip flip burgers at McDonald's. Like it, it is hard to find good people to work anytime. I don't have a lot of experience with having, having to recruit, um, you know, people who are educated about cannabis and chemistry. Um, but you know, I think, I think what I see in this is that those folks out there who put their time and energy into getting degrees in chemistry and biology, um, in college, I think that this is a great opportunity for them because we do need to have people that know cannabis itself, how to grow it, how to take care of it, microbes and nutrients and, and pH and all that stuff. But you also have to pe have people that know chemistry that are capable of working and, uh, and thriving in a lab setting and being able to operate that equipment and understanding pressure and all, all of these chemical changes that happen in the, in the uh, extracts when they're going through these processes. You know, I've learned a lot over the years just listening to, uh, to my, you know, my folks at Commonwealth Extracts and their chemist. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot of experience on that for myself. But honestly, I'll say that that's part of the reason that I didn't get into the CBD extracting side of things. I, I recognized right away that it was expensive, that you needed to have good training, you needed to have chemists on, I think you should have a chemist on staff. Um, and those are all things that I wasn't ready to take that kind of responsibility for. One of the other things, especially you guys up there, because you actually are, is when these people call me and I try to tell them that you know, if you're trying to think grow 30, 50 acres, I say, I said you're also heavy equipment operators, and they the, the logistics. Well, down here in Tennessee, the horror stories of it wasn't so much chemists or things like that. It was being able to get X amount of material out of the field in a timely manner, and whether it was hung or dried. I was was kind of curious because you guys had those big crops. What was the logistics like back then when you all of a sudden were dealing with, what, 25, 30,000 pounds of seed? Yeah. Um, well, luckily, the combine did a lot of that work. Um, but it, the process of that was, uh, you know, harvest the seed with a combine. And then you, we would dump it in a wagon. And then uh, usually there's some kind of auger to pull the seed back out. But uh, that wagon would take the seed straight over to a grain bin that has a dryer on it. Not a dryer like with heat, but just a blower. So it's a fan. Um, and that fan would start blowing air through the seed and, and you know, we continue run, to run that fan 
uh, for several days until the seed was dried down to a moisture content where it would stay, um, where, you know, it would not mold when you stored it. So um, it, it is a little bit of a challenge with the hemp seeds because when you harvest it, you're harvesting it green. Um, and usually when you harvest something with a combine like corn or soybeans, you're actually, um, you know, they use like a desiccant or something to, to dry up the leaves. And uh, once the combine is going through to pick everything, the soybeans and the corn are all dried up. So, you know, you see that corn kind of hanging, hanging down off of the corn stalks and then the combine just comes over and picks it and the corn's already dry. Well, with the hemp, you're picking it green. So all the leaves and buds that are in there, um, they're very moist. They have a lot of, a lot of moisture um, and a lot of heat, you know, because that moisture, when it builds up and you've got a huge container of something and it's a little bit wet, um, that creates a lot of heat and creates mold and things like that. So, um, so you've got to get that seed out of the field right away and get it somewhere that's got a blower where it'll blow, you know, blow air through the seed and get it dried down. But a uh, grain bin is what we used for the seed. And aside from that challenge of, you know, making sure to get it dried as soon as possible so that it didn't get hot or moldy, um, that was the biggest challenge for the seed. You have a bunch of different things. There's one couple of things I want to do, and you can kind of choose where you want to go. One is, I don't know how many people have thought you were hemp works. <laughs> and I'd have to explain to them, no, it's Kentucky hemp works. You had the name first, didn't you? Definitely had the name first. I guess, uh, you know, it's like, what is that saying? Um, imitation is the best form of flattery. Can we just think maybe they were flattering me? <laughs> I like to think, you know, there was actually a whole lot of things um, that they, you know, I don't want to say they copied off of me or anything, you know, this isn't third grade, but, um, but there was a lot of things that we did that uh, got picked up by HempWorks right away as their, you know, like marketing techniques and, um, things that they said and ingredients that they use and things like, like, yeah, I know you don't have hemp seed oil in there. It's clear, you know, it's not even green, but yeah, it was frustrating. That was pretty frustrating, especially to see, uh, you know, to have something that we worked on and built from scratch from nothing. And then, uh, to have that be one of those companies of sort of bad actors that just, just showed up and, threw several million dollars into marketing and then blew up all over the country. And I'm like, man, all these, you know, poor soccer moms and like people who were trying to just make extra money, they're getting the, the wool pulled over their eyes by this company. And I felt bad for them. But, you know, we had a lot of very angry phone calls when HempWorks um, started producing products because, uh, for some different reasons, but yeah, we got a lot of angry phone calls, but we picked up some customers from it as well. So I try not to be too bitter about it. You have a lot of different things you're doing. You got the seed oil, you're still doing the root. Are you going to try to just keep these different revenue streams or is there a direction that you want to go in a new one? Yeah, we have some new ideas coming down the pike. I, and I don't want to say too much because we're still kind of, <laughs> um, we're, still kind of 
tinkering around with things and I don't want to jinx myself, but part of, uh, part of our business sort of philosophy was that we use the whole plant from root to tip. And we do use the stalk a little bit in our fire starters, but we've found a, a potential future product that would utilize the stalk and fiber. That is something that could be done anywhere that you have a CBD crop. If there's a CBD crop and they've harvested it and they've got leftover stalks, you could potentially start your own business doing this. So with any luck, if all of our, we're doing some like testing and some trial runs and things like that right now. And with any luck, I'm hoping that this is something that will not just benefit us that, you know, is work that my husband and I can go out on weekends and, and pick up some extra money on the weekends, but also something that anybody could get trained in how to do and then do it as their own business all over the world, anywhere. Keep your fingers crossed because I'm crossing mine and uh, I think it's a really incredible product and something that could give farmers, especially CBD farmers, something to do with all that leftover stock. One last thing and I'm going to segue to let Abby see if there's any things that she wants to talk to you about. Part of my mission with this is because my dear sweet mom was a feminist and she had her own business and found it frustrating to try to be an independent business owner back in the 60s. It was mm -hmm. harder to get loans, things like that. You're not a feminist, but you are a strong-willed woman. How do you see the women evolving? Because I personally think that this, since this industry doesn't have any glass ceilings, I, I could see women in a couple of years basically running the cannabis industry. Yeah, I can too, actually. Um, and so, yeah, I might, might not really like take the title of feminist, but um, I think that that's really because, um, you know, you, you sort of have to, to think, well, there's, there's something that women don't have that we need. And I think we have everything that we need, especially with the, the cannabis industry. Most of the states that, that I've worked with, um, like the, the individuals in different states that I know personally, most of those states have had a cannabis reform that was championed by women. Yeah, I definitely see this as an industry that that is going to be run by women in some sh way, shape, or form. And and not to say that there's no you know no men doing awesome things. Um, there are definitely a lot of really great guys doing awesome things in this industry. But there are so many incredible, talented, amazing women in this industry. I I love it. I love every bit of it. Also, and I'll say this one thing, because I've had a lot of young women, you know, I, I've, I've talked about hemp, I've gone to different speaking engagements and things for several years now, and, uh, and I always tell people the same thing, and I've had several women come back to me and were like, I wrote that down, what you said, or, or I even had like a guy come up to me and was like, my daughter is 14, and she loved what you said. The world is run by those who show up. And what that means to me is that, you know, out of everybody on this planet, most people are just sort of tooling along, doing their own thing. They're not going to go out and uh, be active in politics or speak their mind about a certain issue. You know, they might care about something, but they're maybe not really willing to go out and try to make change. 
Well, we've seen so many women that were willing to speak up and who are willing to show up. So the world is run by those who show up. And I think that we're going to see a lot more women showing up in the near future. Well, so I had one question and it kind of goes back to um, a little bit of what you highlighted earlier with just farming and disagreements with the Kentucky legislature. What what problems are you um, facing right now being in the state of Kentucky when it comes to cannabis, if any? I know there, that was a reason why you weren't growing cherry. Um, of course, for one thing, just right off the bat, we don't, we don't have all forms of cannabis legal. We, we don't have legal marijuana here, so we're a hemp-only state. But on the hemp issue specifically, we do not have legal flower sales. So what that means is we can't sell uh, hemp leaves, hemp buds, we can't sell microgreens, anything that is uh, considered flower material or floral material. So, uh, so anything that's green and leafy on the plant, we can't sell here. And uh, you can only sell, I, and I should say, we can sell it, but you can only sell it to a licensed processor. And so what that means to a farmer who's growing hemp is that if he signs a contract with a processor to grow, let's say he grows 20 acres of hemp, and this processor says he's going to pay him so many dollars per acre or per pound or per point or whatever, um, and then let's say that that processor is shady and they bail out at the end of the season and that farmer is left with 20 acres worth of hemp uh, that he can't sell because now he's got to go find another processor. Well, if all the other processors did their homework, they already contracted for everything that they can process for the year. So now you have this farmer who did the right thing. He signed a contract. He signed an agreement with the processor, but then the processor bails out. What is he supposed to do? There's no alternative for, for who he can sell it to, except maybe to just sell it for pennies on the dollar to some broker somewhere. And that's not fair. So what we would like is for Kentucky to be allowed to sell the floral material, um, and whether you call it craft flower or buds or whatever, um, we would like to be able to sell that direct to market here. There's, there's a lot of potential for it. Uh, at the very least, it could be used for food, for humans or animals. Um, it could be used for smoking, which is, can be very therapeutic. Uh, it can be used even as uh, microgreens, like as sprouts. So on the other end of the spectrum, you know, at the beginning of the life cycle of the plant, um, it could be used as microgreens. So there's a, there's a lot of things that you, we could do with it if we had this craft flower here in Kentucky and we currently can't. I would say that's the biggest issue uh, on the state level. And I think we have some federal things that need to be changed as well. I got one last question. Since the DEA has rendered opinion, I've gotten probably a half dozen calls from people thinking it was Armageddon mm -hmm. that as we know it, it's like one person literally thought that on November 1st, anything that was over 0.3 Delta 9 was now going to be marijuana and there's going to be DEA agents show up and confiscate their flower. Uh, well, I mean, my personal opinion on that is uh, the DEA is a federal bureaucracy. You know, it's a federal agency. It is, uh, you know, it is accountable to Congress and to, to the president. So, 
Uh, Congress has already determined that the DEA can't spend any money to interfere in states hemp programs. So I don't, I, I don't feel too worried about it. The one thing that I was concerned about, which I, I didn't really pick up on this right away. So I wasn't too concer concerned about what the DEA originally put out because I looked at it and I thought, eh, it kind of looks like bureaucratic housekeeping kind of stuff, like not really any major changes. Um, I don't think that they would be capable of enforcing like every single processor all over the country. I, I just don't think the DEA is big enough to handle that. But what I am a little bit concerned about is the fact that uh, that they announced um, you know, a new synthetics on the market not long after that. So I kind of wonder if uh, if that isn't just sort of getting the camel's nose under the tent for some of these synthetic uh, THC, synthetic CBDs or Delta-8. But I haven't looked into that too much yet. But yeah, my initial, my knee-jerk reaction to the DEA thing was, well, they're, they're not allowed to spend any money on us anyway. So what can they do? They can't even get the gas money to come to Kentucky. We're going to skate out of here, but before we do so, Katie, you got to spam as much stuff, how people get a hold of you, how they can find your product. Well, you can always find us at KentuckyHempWorks.com, and that's all spelled out, the word Kentucky. Um, we are on most of the social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we're also new to TikTok, um, but really loving TikTok. It's a lot of fun, and it gives us a little bit of a chance to be a little bit more real on TikTok. So find us at all of those places at KY Hemp Works. Our YouTube channel is Kentucky Hemp Works. So if you're looking up KY Hemp Works or Kentucky Hemp Works, just about anywhere you can find us. I can't, I can't thank you enough for doing this because this was way cool. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. This has been a blast. And we may have to do this in the future again. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have some awesome news like we raised THC limits and we legalized smokable flour everywhere. And well, I'm going to let you go take care of your youngins. Thanks. Getting them <laughs> beating on the door to get in. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. That's why, I figured the door open. <laughs> we, that's why we're going to wind it up before they tear down the door. But we'll be talking to you soon. Oh, and one of these days, now, how far are you from Nashville? Uh, about an hour and a half. Because one of the things we got to get is some of your hemp oil to eat. We do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and what, what variety of uh, seed are you doing for the oil? We are using X59. Oh, which is, uh, hemp nut. Form formerly known as hemp nut. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know that's good. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> that's got great. Uh, the acids on that are fantastic. They are, yeah. The yeah. omegas have been just yeah. stellar, stellar. All right, well, we're going to have to make it up there then. Definitely. Come see us anytime. All right, bye. Thank you so bye. much, Katie. Bye. Thanks. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, 
Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. 